Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series that we're calling Winning, Seven Messages on Overcoming. And this series is really a walk through what are known as the seven letters to the seven churches captured in the book of Revelation. You can find those in chapters two and three of that book. And we call it winning because every message is aimed at helping the church overcome overcome trial, overcome persecution, overcome temptation, overcome the very real challenges that were facing their lives, but I think as we see them also face our lives every day. In the course of these messages, Jesus has lots of words of encouragement and affirmation. He also has plenty of rebuke and warning, and in every message, there's a call to win, to overcome these challenges. And for the winners, Jesus makes these promises. Promises that speak to the depth of our human longing and also speak to the multifaceted promises and intentions and purposes of God for us. And so this morning, we continue into the message to the church in the city of Thyatira. And as we move into that message, I wonder for you, who can you think of a time where someone has spoken profoundly into your life? Maybe it's, maybe it's happening now. Maybe it happened sometime in the past. First person that came to mind who, speaks in, who spoke into my life in a powerful way was my basketball coach in high school, Coach Haby. And that was a, a really hard time in my life. My parents had divorced, and like most teenage young men, I had almost no interest in talking to anyone about how I was feeling and the questions that were rising up inside of me, and yet I risked letting Coach Haby in. And it wasn't really because I thought he was some sort of wise counselor. I I did think that maybe he was a Christian because he had attended Colorado Christian University for his bachelor degree. He was not in the end, um, and so didn't really know what to do with my questions of faith that were coming out of this crisis. But he was somebody who was consistent in my life, somebody who clearly cared for me, and so I let him in and allowed him to speak into my life in that critical time. Who is it that's spoken into your life? And I think in this message to the church, Jesus is asking us to consider who is speaking into our lives and what is it that they are leading us into. And so we're going to read from Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 18, And if you'd like, you can follow along on the screen, but listen to Jesus' words to the church and to us. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. 
I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule with them will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word recognizing our need for you to understand it, to apply it, to have it make any difference in our lives, we invite you to send your spirit among us to teach us, to guide us, to shape us. It's in the name of Jesus that we trust as we pray. Amen. So Thyatira, unlike a number of the other cities, Ephesus and Pergamum that we've looked at so far, was not a prominent city. It did have a thriving commercial industry. There was significant manufacturing. There was textiles. There was metalworking, specifically bronze, which might be why Jesus introduces himself as the one whose feet are like burnished bronze. And there were tons of trade guilds or unions that were involved in Thyatira, so much so that really membership in one of these guilds was if you were going to be able to participate in the economy, if you were going to be able to have a job. And each guild had its own kind of patron deity, you know, and that that God needed to be worshipped and needed to be appeased so that if this God was was pleased, then the God would bless the guild. And so they would sacrifice animals on these altars, and then they would take the, the animals and they would eat them as a feast where they would just be celebrating in all sorts of revelry and at times debauchery. And so Jesus speaks to this church and says, hey, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, that you're do- doing more now than you did at first. And so Jesus has this incredible glowing affirmation for the church in Thyatira you're doing it. You're growing. You're living out the faith. And in this simple affirmation, we can grab onto one thing that God intends us to continue to grow and mature, that our lives would continue to increase in the fruit of the Spirit and the expression of love and service and care for the world, for one another. And he also has that little word, nevertheless. Words come up a number of times in this series and will keep coming up. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I have this against you, he says. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. She calls herself a prophet. Now, when we think of prophets, I think we often think about the future. We think about how the the prophets predict the future, like how many prophets foretold the, the, the birth of Jesus and his suffering and death and ultimately his triumph. And, and there's certainly an element of that is true 
Sometimes the prophets are given this revelation from God of what will happen in the future, and so they share that message of what God is going to do, but it's really not about the future nearly as much as it is about the present. All of those visions of what God will do is really intended to call the people to live faithfully, obediently today. And so the prophets are trying to help identify how to live in light of who God is, what he requires of us, and what he's going to do off in the future. And so some of the prophets would focus on the reality that God was going to have a future judgment. And and this message of future judgment was a way of warning the people. Hey, your life, it's out of line with God's plan. It's in rebellion for his purposes for you. And so you got to get it back in shape. Shape up. Because he's not going to tolerate your rebellion forever. And this is a good message. I mean, if you've worked with kids, you know, you, first time you warn a child and they ignore you. And then you warn them again and they ignore you again. And they'll continue to ignore your warnings unless there's some real teeth and accountability to the warning that has been given. In the same way, God's saying, hey, it's not working for you, and he warns, and he warns, and he warns, and eventually the judgment has to come or else there's no teeth to it, the accountability is real, it's irrelevant, it doesn't really matter what they're doing if God's not going to do something about it. And so the prophets are saying, shape up because the time's coming when judgment will be here. And other prophets are looking out into the future and they see God's future salvation, And this was often the message that was given to the people who were living in exile, in bondage, in oppression, living as second-class citizens, and God was speaking to them saying, hey, I see you. I see the hardship. I see the trial. I I see you in your suffering. I have not forgotten you nor forsaken you. The time is coming when I will bring you freedom, liberation, healing, wholeness. And so he's offering this word of encouragement to encourage those people to live faithfully and obediently in the present, even though it's hard. And so these prophets are speaking into people's lives, sometimes with a future vision, but all of it, they're speaking because there's a disconnect between God's plan and what's happening in the lives of the people. And if there wasn't a disconnect, then the prophets wouldn't need to speak, would they? I mean, if people were already obedient, then there wouldn't need to be a warning to shape up. I don't know about you, but my parents never warned me when my room was clean and I had done all my chores. They weren't threatening to ground me when everything was as it was supposed to be, right? That wouldn't make any sense. They only would threaten when it was something was lacking, and the prophets are speaking because there's something lacking in the lives and the obedience and the faithfulness of the people in the present. And the same, if people felt calm and confident and peaceful and hopeful, then they wouldn't need a message of encouragement, would they? It would be kind of like trying to cheer up somebody who's already happy. It doesn't make sense. Probably would be quite awkward, actually. And so the prophets step into this disconnect between God's plan and the reality of the lives of the people because God intends for their lives to flourish through obedience and he's warning them that they're on a path to destruction. God intends for them to live in the midst of trial and hardship with hope, with a confidence and a faith in God and in obedience and so he sends them a message of encouragement. And throughout history, there have been lots of prophets and many of the prophets have been women. In the Old Testament, there's women prophets, prophetesses, if you'd prefer. 
One is found in Exodus 15. Miriam is her name. She's the sister of the high priest, the first high priest, Aaron. And in chapter 15, she leads the people of God in singing and rejoicing and dancing in response to God's incredible salvation from slavery and then bringing them through the Red Sea and saving them from the army, the Egyptian army. In Judges chapter 4, Deborah is identified as a prophetess. And in that time, she was the one who was leading Israel. She was literally sitting, deciding, judging between cases when there was a disagreement between people. Eventually, she actually is called to lead them into battle. In the New Testament, there's women prophets. In Luke chapter 2, we're told uh, the story of Anna, who was widowed at a young age, and so she actually went to live in the temple where she, she never left. She was constantly praying and fasting and worshiping, and, and when she was 84 years old, so many years later, Jesus is brought in by his mom and dad for circumcision, and she realizes that this child is the one that she had been longing for, and so she starts telling everybody about the child to anybody who was looking to the hope for the redemption of Israel, and this, was, this is the kid. It's happening before our eyes, calling the people to respond in faithfulness. I'll give you one more. In Acts chapter 21, we're told about Philip the Evangelist. And Philip the Evangelist had four daughters, which was probably already a handful. But we're told on top of that, that all four of them were prophets. Can you imagine what those conversations would have been like? God told me, Dad. It's like, oh man. I'm sure they didn't use it that way. But it wasn't uncommon for women to be prophets, and so that wasn't the issue here. But the way Jesus frames the whole critique is clear. She calls herself a prophetess. He's clearly indicating that she is not a true prophet. She is a false one. And he actually labels her as Jezebel, though that's probably not her real name. It's intended to take us back to the Old Testament, to the story of Jezebel. As a matter of fact, this is a common pattern throughout Revelation. There are constant allusions to things that happened in the Old Testament, and so to unlock meaning, at least partially, even in the craziest, hardest parts to understand in Revelation, there are often allusions to something that happened in the Old Testament, and so to make any sense of it, we've got to understand the Old Testament deeply. So this is another one of those examples, and you can find the story of Jezebel in 1 Kings chapters 16 through 21 if you want to go read it. But what we're told in summary, in chapter 16, verse 31 of 1 Kings, it says this, Ahab, who was the king of Israel, married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve and worship. That's the summary of the problem of Jezebel, that Ahab had taken this woman who, as his wife who did not worship the true God, she worshiped Baal, a false god, and as a result of that, she introduced her husband to this god, and he started worshiping this false god as well. On top of it, she had 850 prophets of this false god, prophets, right, who were calling people to faithfulness to this god, there's this incredible encounter in 1 Kings 18 between Elijah, a true prophet, and all of these prophets. You've got to go read it. I can't, don't even have time to summarize it, but it's an amazing story if you don't know it. She, on top of that, though, she actually systematically seeks out and has murdered the true prophets of God. And so this is the illusion Jesus gives, calling this woman Jezebel, who has risen to prominence 
because she is not only not a prophet, she is a false prophet and silences the true words of the true prophets of God, leading the people away from God's plan and purpose and faithfulness and obedience. Jesus said it this way, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. And I found myself wondering, with this church that had so much that was being affirmed, how does this happen? How does this woman, Jezebel, if that's her name, how does she rise to prominence in this church that seems to have so much going right? And I started thinking more about their circumstance and the situation in Thyatira. I started thinking about the reality of those trade guilds having a stranglehold on the economy and that membership in those guilds required participation in this idol worship. And I started thinking about if they were going to stay true to their faith, they were probably excluded from the trade guilds. And so they were probably in poverty. They were probably trying to figure out how to make ends meet, but they had no access to the normal economic system. And so you got to imagine they're wondering. How am I going to provide for my family? Where's the next meal going to come from? If you just think about it, try to imagine just for a moment that you not only don't have a job, you cannot have a job. No access to a mechanism to have income. What would you do? What would start to rise up in you when the cupboard starts to be empty and bare? And so you can imagine this angst and this fear and this anxiety that might have been welling up inside even these folks who are faithfully in the church. And then Jezebel rolls into town claiming to speak for God. And we're not exactly sure what her teaching was, but we see the results of it. And so her teaching may have been something like this. What are you so worried about? Why are you living so restricted? Trade guilds? Sure, you can be a part of the guilds. No big deal. You have this incredible freedom in Christ. So go ahead, eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus forgives you. It's no big deal. He doesn't want you to live in bondage to rules anymore. God wants you to be happy. And you can imagine this teaching being so different, being like a breath of fresh air for them. What? You, you mean, I can, I can get a job? I could, I could provide for my family? I wouldn't have to worry about where the next meal is going to come from, you can imagine the relief and the hope and the security. But Jesus calls her teaching the so-called deep secrets of Satan. She may have been even, even been as brash and bold to say, because of your freedom in Christ, you can go right into Satan's lair and not even worry about it. Because of your faith in Christ, you can charge right in, eat the food, sacrifice to the idols, do with the dances, participate in the revelry. It's no big deal. And you can, we can just imagine if this is the reality, this teaching might, might have just helped alleviate this incredible angst and anxiety that they were carrying with them for so long. She was the hero. Call her the fire tyrant idol. Coming into town, making it right, making it good, alleviating their angst. And if we think about it, I think this happens actually in our lives individually and definitely in our lives as a society. We face these moments or these seasons of angst and turmoil where things feel like they're bubbling up and even bubbling over these moments that Peter Steinke, who is an author and a pastor and a director of multiple counseling centers and a consultant, he calls these moments uproar. 
These times where there's this sense of disruption and dislocation, this sense of change that is overwhelming and seems like it's out of control. Feel like there's any of those in our world right now? In our society? In your own life individually? Is there any uproar? I mean, the reality is in those in those places of disruption and dislocation, those are often the places of incredible uncertainty where everything feels like it's shaking and rocking. And I can remember on our honeymoon, when we got married, we were on a ferry. It was my first time ever on a ferry, and it wasn't a very big ferry. And it was about a half-hour ride where we were trying to go, and, and it wasn't even that stormy a day, but there was a lot of chop on the water. Remember, I grew up in the mountains, so this is like a weird deal. And so we're on this boat, and it starts just going, boom, 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 boom over every bit of chop and you can just imagine how quickly I had never been seasick before but I was seasick then and everything in me when it was rocking and it was shaking just wanted things to stop and in those moments where it feels like our lives are rocking and shaking isn't the thing we long for most just some stability And so we often look to someone or something that can hopefully provide us that stability Otherwise, it leaves us feeling exposed and vulnerable to nausea, in my case, in that situation, or maybe exposure to feeling taken advantage of, of losing things that are important to us, of an uncertainty and a change. Who knows where it's going to go and end up? And all we want in that moment is to be protected and some stability, and we want someone who will give us some answers, some solutions to relieve us from the angst and the anxiety and the uncertainty. And Steinke says, in those moments, we're prone to seek rescuers with puffed-up promises and rich remedies. We're prone to seek out authorities who offer answers to our questions, who will rescue us and save us so we don't have to take responsibility. We look for charismatic leaders with big promises and lots of bravado because they're gonna be the hero to save the day. We look for friends or peers who are probably just as lost as we are, but to offer us some word of affirmation that the things that we're doing that we feel like aren't helping are actually gonna be fine. Don't worry about it, no big deal. We look to celebrities so often in our culture because, hey, it seems like they've figured something out. Just look at the results of their lives and you might be going, oh, I'm, I'm not susceptible to that sort of thing. Then why do they keep paying them millions of dollars to endorse products that if you don't buy them, your life is gonna be lesser than at least very normal, but probably it's gonna be worse off without it. See, they know there's something deep within us that's looking for an answer and somebody to speak what that answer is going to be into our lives. And politicians prey on this reality all the time. Parents utilize this authority. We're looking for people who have the answers. And so if you're in uproar right now, personally or collectively, who's speaking into your life? Who are your so-called prophets? Who are those that are speaking into your life, telling you how to make life work, how to make life work out for you, that it's going to be okay, and maybe even better, it's going to be good. Is it pundits, teachers, friends, parents? Who is it? And it's not just about who. What's their message? Is the message that they're giving you, is it leading to life 
that is lasting to security and a foundation that won't shift on you? Or does it lead to something that gives a quick fix, alleviates the anxiety for the moment, but in the long run leads to further disruption, dislocation, and uncertainty? See, because Jezebel was leading the people to idolatry. That's what it was, to worshiping these local deities that were supposed to provide for them. But what happens when you've done everything you're supposed to to worship your local deity, and then somehow the, the drought kills off the food supply? And now the animals don't have what they need to eat, and so they're not thriving, and so you don't have the, the material needed to create the textiles that create your thriving trade guild. And what happens when the mine dries, runs out? You know, it's like, I thought this God was supposed to provide for us, for the trade guild. I thought this was supposed to give us the security that we longed for, but it's not working. See, all of these idols are temporary and uncertain solutions. And so as you think about who's speaking into your life, what are they pointing you to for hope, significance, security, meaning? Because ultimately, that's what idolatry is all about. Whenever you see idols in the Bible, you see idolatry, a good definition that you can use to think of it isn't like a little statue on, a, you know, on a, some sort of pedestal that you're bowing down and worshiping. A good definition for idolatry is this. Trusting in created things rather than the creator for hope, happiness, significance, security, meaning, love. You, you could keep adding to that list but it's essentially looking to someone or something for the things that only God can give us. And all of these created things are temporary. They maybe give that quick fix, alleviate the anxiety, but ultimately turn out to be temporary and uncertain, but God is permanent and certain. So what are you looking to? What are your prophets pointing you to for hope, meaning, security, significance. I mean, certainly the so-called prophets of our society are so often pointing to fitness and beauty. If you can just have this kind of body, if you can look this sort of way, if you can achieve this sort of health, you know, then, then you'll be happy. And all of that, those prophets refuse to acknowledge the reality that we will all get old, it will catch up. I don't want to break it to you, but you're older now than you were when you walked in the room. And so beauty fades, Mus muscular structure fades, health gives way. And if this is what's supposed to give you significance, it's temporary, you may hold on to it for a while, but it won't last. What about the American dream that has driven so many for so many years, that dream of making sure that you, know, you get the good enough education to get the job, to get the house, to get the family, to get the picket fence, to get the retirement, to live right off into the sunset of security, putting your feet up on a beach for the rest of the days of your life? Well, what happens? What happens when the economy takes a turn? Can you imagine that, that, that the economy could possibly take a turn? I mean, what if it happened? What if the stock market tumbled and that retirement savings withered away? What happens if you lose that job? What happens if you don't get into that school? What happens if the pieces of the dream don't line up? If that was the thing that was going to give you significance and security, then you might find yourself on a ferry boat. 
For so many, I think that the, 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 the word that's being spoken into our lives that we're looking to for security is actually just looking for control. If I could just get control of this one aspect of my life, if I could just get this to fit into place finally, then things would work out. Then I'd be happy. Then I'd be, then I'd be secure. Then I'd be confident. If I could just get these people to get on board with my plan or where we're headed, if I could just get my kids to do what I want, well, I wouldn't say that directly. If I could just get them to thrive and flourish, that's what I meant. If I could just get my parents to listen, to get on board with the plans that I've got for them and for my life, if these friends would just treat me in a certain way, if I could just get this health concern, if we could just get this political party out of power, or if we could get that one into power, man, then things would be perfect. Security. If I could just get that person to love me and accept me for who I am rather than having to constantly perform to get any sort of affection. Or just do whatever you want to be happy. Whatever makes you feel happy, just do it. And how many times have you heard the story of finally achieving it, finally doing it, but it wasn't actually that satisfying? There's so many things and so many voices telling us this is where you're going to find your security. This is where you're going to find your happiness, your identity. But it's fleeting. Leads to more uncertainty, more disruption, more dislocation, more uproar. Who's speaking into your life and what are they pointing you to? Because Jesus is saying in this message, be careful, be careful, consider carefully who you're listening to because I've given Jezebel plenty of time to repent, to turn away from her false message, from her immorality, but she's not willing. And so I'm gonna cast her on a bed of suffering so that all of those who follow her way, all of those who listen to her voice, all of those who seek security, significance, happiness, identity, love in these false gods, all of them will suffer unless they turn back. Everyone who's drinking the Kool-Aid is going to finally see the judgment when it comes. I've warned you. I'm calling you back. And eventually the judgment will come. And then Jesus says, all the churches will know that I am the one who searches hearts and minds. In other words, I'm the one who looks at what are your real intentions. I'm the one who looks beyond your outward performance because the things you're doing outwardly might look good, might look pious, might look righteous, might look holy, but man, maybe you're just doing it because the real idol is you. I wanna do this on my terms because I wanna look good enough before the world, before God. And if you're listening to prophets that just aren't, <laughs> that are pointing you toward idolatry, man, turn away. They're pointing you to something uncertain and insecure. Turn away because Jesus is saying, hey, to those who overcome this temptation to listen to the false prophets, to look for security and confidence and significance and love in all of these other places, hold on to what you have, Jesus Christ, because that's what you have. That's what I'm offering you. If you can hold on to me, to those who overcome, I'll give you authority over the nations. 
I mean, this is like a whole nother message because it's so mind-blowing to think about this reality that Jesus is saying, when I come back and I establish my kingdom fully here on earth as it is in heaven, I'm not here just to rule over you and force you to constantly bow your knee before me and you know, constantly be worshiping and like this. No, I'm actually gonna share my rule and my reign with my followers because the kingdom is gonna be alive and it's gonna be active and Jesus is gonna give away his authority to those who overcome the temptation to look for their significance, their meaning, and their authority in other things. But he goes on and says, I will also give him the morning star. And we find out in Revelation twenty-two sixteen what that means, because Jesus there says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. He's saying, when you have me, when you hold on to me, I will never be taken away from you. You'll have me today, you'll have me tomorrow, you'll have me for an eternity. And I will be your source of security, significance, meaning, hope, life, joy. And it can never be taken away from you because it has been secured through my life, my death, my resurrection. There's no failure of yours that can't be overcome by what I have done for you so that, hey, you need to know you're loved and accepted, you need to know things are in control, I've got it under control. Hold on to me, and I will never leave you or forsake you. I am secure, and I am certain. Who are the prophets speaking in your life? What are they pointing you to? Are they pointing you back to Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that though when we look at our lives, we see a tendency to look elsewhere. Because of our anxiety, our angst, our impatience, our fear. We look for quick fixes to people and things to alleviate the inner angst and disruption within us. And Lord, we acknowledge that and in this moment we want to turn back from from those, that tendency, we want to turn back to you to receive from you the love that we desperately long for, to receive from you the significance of being called your children, to receive from you the confidence that you are the God who is over all of history and you are in control to receive from you everything that we need, to receive from you the gift of yourself. Lord God, help us see where we, who we're listening to, what they're pointing us to, and help us to hold fast to you. In Jesus' name, amen.